Next Chapter Podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The 500 The 500 J.A.M. been walking us down through that 2012 edition So it ain't nothing too new Hundreds more to go and in need of a friend The king of peace for Angelo Talking the 500 until the end Talking the 500 until the end with my man J.M. On the 500, talking the 500 until the end. That is all the way from Memphis by Mott the Hoople. And it looks like bees and it flies like booze. It's from the 1973 record Mott. It's also number 370 out of 500 on the 500 with Josh Adam Myers. The only music deep dive show that's hosted by a guy that doesn't know shit about the record. So if you want real insight, turn this off because we're trying to make you laugh. If you are listening and you've stuck around, I fucking love you. I'm, I open like that because I'm so fucking sick of people getting mad at me for not knowing about these records or, or, or whatever it is that they're getting super pissed about. Like, we got a lot of flack about the Arctic Monkeys one. Like, we didn't give it the respect, which is complete and utter shit, because we did. And if they would have listened to the end of the record, then they would have known that by the end of it, Dan Soder and I, which I already was a fan, but Soder wasn't, he was a fan of AM, not so much the first record. And yet, some of the songs sound the same. I'm sorry. If you're not, uh, uh, you know, a musicologist, that's how it might come off to you. But by the end of the record, he gave it all the respect it deserved. I'm sorry I'm not Malcolm Gladwell. I'm sorry I'm not Rick Rubin. I'm just trying to listen to some records and, and, and you know, find out about some music and talk to some fun people and make some jokes. This is a lot of work, and I'm a busy guy, and I'm not making any money off this podcast anymore, you know? So, if you're not paying us, then don't say shit. 
or be a bitch and go on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment that I'm the worst host of all time, which, you know, yeah, I read it because I hope to see all the inspiring ones that make me want to do this. But then you do an episode like this and then you, and then you're like, you know what? This nah, I'm going to stick around because you know what really happens? You're in you're in Ohio uh, with Big J and this chick comes up to me and goes, hey, thank you for doing the 500, because if it wasn't for your podcast, I wouldn't have known or had listened to Wu-Tang Clan. And I was like, whoa, like you'd never heard Wu-Tang Clan? She was like, no, I, you did the podcast and, and that is what got me to listen to the record and I love them. They're one of my favorite artists now. And then I was like, have you listened to Tikal or, or Only Built for Cuban Links? And she was like, no. And I was like, here's what you do. Do Raekwon, then do Jizza, then do Meth, then do ODB, and then listen to Wu-Tang Forever. Oh, also you gotta do Ghostface. And she's into it because of this podcast. And that's what I wanted, man. I just wanted y'all to like listen to some music and laugh with me and make some money. And we did for a minute. For a minute, it was it was pretty fruitful. Now I am uh, about to sell Lekka. So if anybody's trying to buy a uh, four and a half year old Doberman, I'm selling her for about 300 bucks, $300. But man, join the fucking Patreon, dude. Join the Patreon. Give us $5 a month so we can keep making the show. I just want to finish this, man. I want to I want to make a little bit of cash, pay all the people that work for the show and, and then get to fucking number one on May 31st, 2028. That's all I want to do. So luckily, I've got road gigs. Hopefully, I'll see some of you guys there. Let's let's go through them. All right, yo. Next week, May 13th through Sunday, May 16th, I will be at the House of Comedy in Scottsdale, Arizona. I think I might have said Phoenix. They're very close to one another. All I know is it's the House of Comedy. I'm doing six shows. I'm headlining. Then I will be in New York City at The Stand, New York Comedy Club, The Comedy Cellar, until about June 23rd and I'll be up every single night so if you're in New York you're in New Jersey and you want to come check me out oh and I've got a show in Jersey I'll I'll talk about that one next week I don't feel like looking for it Thursday June 24th I'll be at the St. Louis Funny Bone through Sunday June 27th and then I'm back in LA and then Thursday August 5th I'll be at the DC Comedy Loft uh, through Saturday August 7th and then Vancouver's coming up Meth Syndicate's getting married. Skankfest South. I've got Edmonton coming up. I've got fucking Austin. I'm doing Moon Tower where we did our first live one. So all the tickets are at joshadammyers.com. Go there, support the show, follow me at Josh Adam Myers, and you know, help me help y'all know about music sometimes. I know this went on a little longer, but I am frustrated with this shit. Don't edit any of this, Peter. Join the Patreon. $5 a month or more. Support the Fleece Army at patreon.com backslash the 500 podcast. The videos are posted a day early, and then you can watch them on YouTube. Subscribe to that. Do whatever you got to do. Just do it. All right. Let's get to this album this week. So as everybody knows, my probably my top five favorite records from starting this podcast has been All the Young Dudes by Mott the Hoople. I remember listening to that and just being blown the fuck away, man. It's such a great record. It's not even All the Young Dudes. It's like uh, One of the Boys and Jerkin' Crocus and Sea Diver. I mean, I don't even need to look up the songs because they're like engraved in my heart. 
and I love them. And that was a band that I only knew all the young dudes. So it was really exciting for me to see another record coming up on this and being like, oh, does it live up to it? Is it gonna be great like the other one? Am I gonna feel it on that level that, that I felt all the young dudes? And guess what? Not as good in my opinion, but man, this was still a fun record. And you know, sometimes we get fun guests to join us. And we today have the lead singer and founding member of Def Leppard, who you might have heard me do the podcast for Hysteria with Big J and the Sklar Brothers. Can you believe it? Lead singer of Def Leppard on the 500. If you would have told 10 year old Josh, Shit, if you would have told fucking 28-year-old Josh DJing at the strip club where Isis is dancing to pour some sugar on me that I am playing wearing a shitty Reservoir Dog-style suit at Rouge, I would have said, mind exploded. Because this is just cool. This is this is what makes me want to keep doing the podcast, guys. This is it right here. All right, so rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to the 500 and listen free on all platforms. Anywhere you get your pods, we got it there. And if you're listening on Apple, leave a five-star rating. And please, please leave a fucking review, man. I am so sick of these people shitting on me. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Go to my website, joshadammyers.com. Uh, and you will find uh, videos and shows, and you will find uh, I'm starting my own Patreon for myself so you guys can help support Josh Adam Myers. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group run by Crazy Evan. He is a fucking loon at the 500 Podcast with Jam. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. That is a Dougal Supreme. It's a lot of words. Well, Nothing left to say, but here we go with 370D. Mod by Mata Hoople. Enjoy the episode. What's up, Fleece Army? Before we get into the pod, let me tell you about our incredible sponsor, Sunset Lake CBD. Now, you hear about CBD companies just chucked at you from every angle. You see it at the supermarket. You see it at the the bong-buying store or uh, vape store, whatever. The store. It's everywhere now. CBD is like Chipotle. It's, it's everywhere. Well, I got the company that I believe in, and not just because they're paying me. They are a farm. I believe in them. I believe in this company. They sent me all their shit, and I was like, all right, well, let me try a little bit of everything. And I, I'm not going to lie. I am blown away by everything. It is a great company. They are a farm-owned business that ships CBD products directly from their farm to your door. So you don't have to go to any of those stores anymore. You can just get it right to your door. They started as a Vermont dairy farm producing milk from Ben and Jerry's ice cream, but then they diversified and started growing hemp for CBD, and they've got it all. They got pre-rolls if you want to smoke it. They got hemp cigars if you like blunts and you want to feel like Snoop Dogg. They have flour if you want to take bong rips to be like Tommy Chong. They got tinctures if you want to be a 75-year-old woman that can't smoke because her lungs hurt. They got gummies that are delicious. You're going to eat more than one. They have CBD coffee so you can start your day getting your daily dose of CBD and get a little skin. Giggly doogly. Uh, people hate when I do that, but I'm going to keep doing it. And it's crafted to help with stress, aches, and pains. And the tincture, I give it to my dog. She loves it. CBD from Sunset Lake will save you money by shipping this high-quality CBD product directly from their farm to your door. 
You want a code so you can get 20% off on all products? Use code JAM500 for 20% off everything. SunsetLakeCBD.com. Use code JAM500. That's J-A-M-500 for 20% off all products. Once again, SunsetLakeCBD.com. JAM500 for two zero, and then that weird percentage symbol for all kinds of goodies. Cheaper. And now, back to the book. So, Mott the Hooper, which is probably the band out of this podcast that we started doing that I have fallen the most in love with because all I really knew was all the young dudes. And to be honest with you, all I really knew was the Bruce Dickinson version. So to be able to like dive into the actual band has been a fucking trip. Uh, you're not only a fan, you're in a Mott the Hoople cover band. Well, I'm in a band. Um, I mean, I have a side project called The Down and Outs, which was put together specifically because being such a Mother Hoople fan for many years and then being successful in, in, in Def Leppard, word got back to all members of Mother Hoople that there's this crazy fan in, in this band um, that are, you know, quite popular and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I got to know Ian Hunter over the years. Um, very, very well indeed. And I used to kind of, when I was a kid, early early 80s, early 20s, I used to hang out with Pete over and Watts, the bass player. He lived about five miles from me in London and he had a second-hand shop because um, he was out of the music industry by then. And I used to just hang out with him and play postal chess when I was on tour and buy crap from his junk shop and stuff just because it was his junk shop. Um, you know, and I met Mick Ralphs a bunch of times when he was in bad company and... Um, they were just a band that I loved and they were gone, you know, but then all of a sudden I got this, I got this inkling. I got a, a kind of an email thing from Trudy Hunter and it just was entitled, shh. <laughs> I'm like, what? And she goes, don't say a word, but they're going to reform. I'm like, what? And then she said, they want you involved. Um, because of your support over the last 30 odd years, because they split in 74 and they got back together in 2009. That's quite a long time, you know. And um, so I said, well, what do they want me to do? Like jump up on stage and go, ladies and gentlemen, after all this time, please welcome Mother Hoople. And she said, no, they want you to open for them uh, on the last night of the, these shows that they were doing in London at the Hammersmith. So I said, well, Def Leppard can't do it. It's inappropriate. She said, no, I get it. Can you think of anything that'll work? Well, it transpires that the promoter of these shows was a guy called Mick Brown, who looked after the choir boys, who were a very stonesy, mock, kind of sleazy rock and roll group. And they volunteered their services to be my band. Um, Spike, the singer, graciously stood aside. And um, we got in this rehearsal room. I picked the songs. Well, actually, I picked the songs six months before the shows. They learned them on you know, in, in six months uh, on in sound checks and all that kind of stuff while they were in Europe. I was practicing on the back of the bus all the way through the, the American tour that we were on. We met up a week before the first show. Um, I mean, never met the guys before. And, and we, we knew the songs inside out that I'd picked. 
So the rehearsals went really, really well. And we didn't have a name for the band until I saw the headline uh, about a, a British snooker player who was down and out. I said, let's call ourselves a down and out and let's spell it with a Z like the old glam bands used to do. And uh, so the down and outs were born. And that's the reason that we were, we were, I didn't actually form the band to become a multiple cover band. I was just invited in to be the opening act on one of their shows. And I had to put a band together. And yeah, yeah, yeah. down and outs were born. So not wanting to step on their toes when we opened for them, we didn't play any multiple material. We did the spin off stuff. So after they split, they became mocked when Hunter and Ralphs left and then Benjamin and then um, Bender left. They were joined by a guy called Nigel Benjamin on vocals. who used to be in a band with Nicky Six called London um, and a great guitarist called Ray Majors. And they just dropped the hoople from the name and became mocked. Then when Benjamin got fired, they got in John Fiddler from a British band called Medicine Head from uh, few hits in the early 70s. And they became this band called British Lions, which actually had a, a, a modicum of success in America. Um, and so I, I did one of their songs, a bunch of mock songs and a bunch of Ian Hunter solo songs, which is what I thought everybody would want to hear. If I was me in the front row watching me up there, what would I want to hear me do? And it would be everything that Mott Hoople did after they split up but still yeah. connected to the band. Yeah. So that's what it was. And he went down an absolute storm. So we just kept going. The second album was a bunch of Mott songs. And the third album that came out in 2019 was all originals. So it's kind of moved on from being a Mott cover band. But again, like I said, they only put together because Ian and Trudy said, we want you involved somehow as a thanks. So yeah. that, you know, my relationship with this band, that's where it kind of was solidified, but it began way back in 1971 when I was under the bedclothes with my tiny little transistor radio, hoping my parents couldn't hear me listening to Radio Luxembourg, yeah. an illegal station on a boat 12 miles offshore in the UK. You may be seeing a movie called The Boat That Rocks, which is about these pirate radio stations. And um, they used to play a very eclectic kind of playlist. They'd go a lot deeper than the BBC dare. And I, the first song I ever heard by Mott was... Um, a cover of a Neil Young tune called Downtown. Actually a Danny Whitten song recorded by, uh, I guess it was what um, whatever band Neil Young was in uh, with it had Danny Whitten in it. Uh, was it uh, Crazy Horse? Crazy. I don't know. But anyway, um, I heard this song because it was Song of the Week. They played it every hour for seven days. <laughs> so you really got to know this song. And I fell in love with it. I just thought it was a great tune. And then I go, um, back in, in, in the early 70s, Island Records in the UK was like the, the label to be on. They had every fantastic artist from Free, Mark the Hoople, um, King Crimson, Cat Stevens. They just had some fantastic acts. And they used to do these compilation albums that were really cheap, like a dollar, but there'd be a double album with 25, 26 songs on it. And I heard... Thunderbolt Ram on, on a, a, an album called Bumpers, I think it was. And then I heard the original Mixed Up Kid on an album called LP. And that's where I really kind of bonded with this band. And I don't know why I was 11, 12 years old. They were very grown up to compared to everything else that I'd been listening to yeah. um, at that age of my life. But um, I just loved them long before they had a hit, if you like. And I used to tell my mates in school, wait till you hear this band. And they were going, Mott the what? 
they just didn't get it, you know, because it wasn't Bowie, it wasn't T-Rex. But then in 1972, all of a sudden, it was. Yeah. You know, when Bowie gave up dudes, boom. And I was the one in the schoolyard going, told you so. <laughs> Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Ani DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast. A songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of the Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday. So how, how is it like, how is, how is Mott like influenced Depp Leopard? I mean, obviously, it's like, I mean, I don't know. It's like you can hear it like like in, in real similarities. But obviously, when you get into a band at such a young age, I mean, it has to kind of work into, you know, your repertoire as a huge fan. Little bit, not a lot. I mean, I get asked that question quite often. I don't really hear much Mott the Hoople in Def Leppard at all. Maybe in the latter days when we started using a piano and stuff like this. Yeah. Um, it was more the influence of the, it was the kind of band that we liked. We, we loved all the bands like The Faces and, and say Mott the Hoople. And now a band like The Choir Boys took it way more literally as being a fan of that. I mean, they actually sounded like The Faces. Whereas we were, they were part of a big picture. There was all these bands like UFO, ACDC, Thin Lizzy were more of a, an obvious um, influence on Def Leppard because they were guitar-based groups and we were a guitar-based band when we got together. There's no hint of a piano player in our band or the kind of slow ballady piano songs that Ian Hunter would write. Um, it was more the, the vibe of this really cool front guy with the hair and the shades um, who didn't look like a poser. Most people wearing shades all the time look like posers. For him, it was just part of him. You know, it was like, maybe it's my age when I saw it. Somebody 10 years older than me may have thought poser, but I didn't at the age of 11 or 12 mm -hmm. or whatever it was. So it was a cool image, you know. Um, 
It did, it did start to leak a little bit into us, but it was so subtle that nobody, unless you pointed it out, would notice. And it was on things like photograph and fooling where we would do these O's um, leading into bridges and, and choruses. And they were kind of stolen directly off the golden age of rock and roll. There's no doubt about it, they were. But from a musical point of view, I don't think there's any one Leopard song that has any connection to any one Mott song, other than the fact that we play all the young dudes religiously every time we get a chance. We did it for the end of the uh, induction of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with Ian Hunter and Brian May and a bunch of other people. Um, <clears throat> But again, that song was written by David Bowie, so they only That's played true. it. You know, the influence yeah. of the song really, or if we ever wrote a song that sounded a bit like Dudes, it was us being more influenced by Bowie's song. Sure. Mott, I was just a massive fan of. Had we had a piano player, I may have well have said, we need to do more songs like, you know, Memphis or, or Roll Away the Stone or whatever. Anything that, yeah. that big piano parts in it, you know. Yeah. All right, well, let's actually, now that you started off talking about uh, All the Way from Memphis, let's just dive into the record. Um, all right, so it opens up with All the Way to Memphis. Uh, I love this song so much. Uh, literally, the piano run to start the song is magical. This went to number 10 on the, new, on the UK chart and was inspired by the events leading up to the band's final concert of an American tour in 71 at Ellis Auditorium in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, Mick Ralphs traveled by car with Ver, Verdon Allen and intended to send his guitar on the flight with the rest of the band, but it got lost. In this version, the guitar gets forgotten and then sent by train to the wrong city by mistake. Um, thoughts on the first time you heard this and like what this did to you? Well, it wasn't that deep when I first heard it. I mean, I, didn't, I wasn't really contemplating the lyrics as a 13-year-old kid. You're more into just doing this, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you get into the lyrics, but you get into more the character of the voice. The thing about Ian is he wasn't what you'd call a classic singer in the sense of a Lou Graham or a Paul Rogers or um, Steve, what's his name, from Kansas, who's just could sing the phone book and make it sound amazing. Ian was Dylan. He was, he was himself, well, he's him, but he's influenced a lot by Dylan. So he would portray a vocal more than sing it, if you like. And I, I aspired to that a lot because he kind of, it's very working class to like the kind of guy that's got the bra bravado to get up and do it, but wasn't necessarily blessed with, the, with a voice like Robert Plant or Paul Rogers. But when you hear the opening line, Forgot my six-string razor and hit the sky. It's attitude. It's all attitude. It draws your ear straight in. He's telling a story straight away. Halfway to Memphis before I realized, you know. Yeah. And then, you know, I mean, calling the guitar a six-string razor, it's like, where did that come from? You know, and I mean, maybe it is a, a, a reference that people from days gone by would say, oh, yeah, that's an old blues term. But it's like, I'm not aware of that. Um, he was very flowery in his in his descriptions of things, and that helps move a song along. So, for example, if you're Japanese and you can't tell what the lyrics are, this is still a great song. I'm not Japanese, and I do know what <laughs> well, you're not are. Japanese. What the lyrics were before they really resonated to me is like, God, this guy can write. 
That came yeah. a lot later in my life, you know. But the fact is, to me, the intro of that song with the piano, you've got this staccato right hand just going gang, 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 gang. And you've got the left hand doing the, the kind of emphasis. And it starts off slow and it's, it's on the fours and then it goes to the eights and then it goes to the sixteens. It's like an orgasm going into the first drum fill. Yes. And an illegal one that you can get away with on daytime radio. <laughs> and it was, it, it was such a build. Now on the single that we heard on the radio, they cut that in half. So it was, it kind of started halfway through. But when you bought the album, you heard the whole build and it, it was the tension. And this is what that song did. It, up until that album, they'd not, they'd had some great moments in their career, but they'd never had a well-produced record. I mean, it's, it's to my ears, the previous album that was produced by Bowie was actually really thin, weedy sounding, didn't have much to it at all. Dude sounded great. And as I heard from the guys, you know, many times that when I met them and it came up in conversation, yeah, he spent a lot of time mixing that song and, and about the same amount of time mixing all the other nine, you know, because it was Bowie's song and he knew it was the hit. But when it came to working with, I think it was Bill Price who worked on the Mott album, all of a sudden the sounds had come together, all that experience of the four albums for Island Records, and now they're on their second album with Columbia or CBS in the UK. They've, they've got it, you know, Buffin, uh, Watsy and, and Ian co-produced that record, I believe. And they had, with a, an engineer like Bill Price, they got these sounds down and they blended very well with the direction that the songs were going in because they were very different to anything they'd done before. Dudes, the Dudes album was hinting at where they were going, but Mott took them there full speed. And Memphis is such a fantastic opener. Such a fantastic opener. Uh, Morty, is there anything you want to add? Well, yeah, this is uh, the music for this was actually written as a demo and recorded before Hunter could figure out the melody and the lyrics. He couldn't figure out what to do with it yet. So it took a while to get there. And then the tenor sax is played by Andy McKay of right. recent 500 guests, uh, Roxy Music. And it's really the first song that shows Hunter's propensity for writing about the weariness of rock and roll versus just how great it all is, which comes back a lot on this record. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. He's, you know, he was he, he, in in the day on other songs he's written in in, uh, in in previous to the Mott album. He was very genuinely into the the glory of rock and roll, and he still is even to this day. But he, what he brought in was stuff that he wasn't aware of. When when Mott did their first album, they'd never even done a gig. They recorded the album and then went started touring, and they do little tours and they weren't long. And they'd have to make the next record within six months, so they had to do a lot of writing fast. He didn't have the road experiences to write about. By the time they got to 1972, he'd had a, he'd had more than his fair share of disappointments, which as a, as a songwriter that Ian is in the mold of a Bob Dylan or or any of those kind of guys that write about the weariness of life, uh, Leonard Cohen, etc. Yeah, Ian brought that in as a great mixture of. I mean, they were heading into a glam area. They were, you know, they were, they were a year earlier, they were wearing platforms and flares for the first time and wearing eyeliner and Pete Watts was spraying his chest and his hair with silver car paint, you know, to, to kind of join in with the Slades and the Bowies and the Bolans of this world. Um, and you could tell that it wasn't really them. They were going along for the ride, but it wasn't going to last very long as it was brought up in, in lyrical commentary on the next album, The Hoople. 
Um, but on this one, yeah, there was, you know, he, he writes about the day they split up and then they reformed again, you know, because that's what happened. They split up in a in a gas bunker in, in somewhere in Europe, in Zurich. Um, in Zurich. And, uh, you know, it was just a DJ called Duffy, Mott the Hoople, and about five kids and a dog watching the gig. And they got into a huge fight and then they were, they split. And then they all got this train back to the, you know, the northern coast of France so they could get on the ferry to go home. And because the pressure was off, they actually started talking to each other after they'd split, you know. And then, but they all got home and they were split. And Pete Watts called Bowie up and said, uh, do you need a bass player? And why? Do, why? Well, we split up and he went, no, you can't do that. <laughs> and he gave them Suffragette City and they rejected it. Then yeah. he gave them Dudes and they went, oh, this is the one. And all that, all that was written into Ballad and Mott, pretty much. You know, the, when they split up and 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 that, they, you know, Buffin lost his childlike dreams and Mick lost his guitar was another again another reference to that lyric in 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 Memphis. So yeah, Hunter's songwriting really expanded a lot on this record uh, dramatically in both senses. He could write some of the most brilliantly nonsensical stuff, which was perfect for the times. I mean, you ask him what a Honolucci is and he'll tell you he has no idea. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's a great sounding word. For you know, sure. Doing the Honolucci boogie. It sounds like something that Glenn Miller could have written and we wouldn't have batted an eyelid. So why would you bat an eyelid when a rock band does it? You know, 100%. So. All right. Uh, so next song, Kid. I want to talk about uh, Him for the Dudes. <laughs> First, uh, at first, it appears like a pro-religious song, but Hunter has explained that it was a message to their fans who thought all the young dudes made them look like they jumped on the glam bandwagon. Uh, although a version by Verdon Allen and Hunter existed before Bowie was in their orbit, it was rewritten after, and as Hunter has compared Bowie to a draining vampire, it also likely addressed their feelings toward him and the messianic complex that some rock and roll stars can get after being adored for too long. How do you think about that? Uh, wow. <laughs> that's, uh, that's deep, man. That's deep, you know. Um, I think if he hadn't said that, and I'm not saying he didn't, he would have said that a long time after all this happened. Okay, at the time, they were more than happy that Bowie took them from the doldrums and took them to a place where they could actually write their own hits. So it, the, the, the springboard that all the young dudes was, was they were very eternally grateful for it. And, and, and in fairness, if that's a negative comment about Bowie, he said many, many positive ones over the years about, you know, that song. He still plays it. He never gets fed up of it because he knows what it means to him, never mind to his audience, you know. Um, yeah. I think, again, when you do observational stuff, you've got to be brave. It's like being a journalist. You can't just sugarcoat everything. I think it's it's brave of anyone to slag off the guy that helped get you where you are in case you see him in the corridor of a hotel one day. And you go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, how could you do that after all I did for you? Uh, no. Um, 
again, it's all drama. And, and you've also got to realize that when a, a songwriter as gifted as Ian Hunter is with words, sometimes when he does interviews, he tarts them up a little bit for some controversy as well. You know, so they kind of, they're going hand in hand with his songwriting. Yeah. But um, it's, again, it's a beautiful song. The, the physical dynamics of that song, I think it's, it's the first time that they use like thunder thighs, you know, the oohs and ah backing vocals that like the Stones had used on like Gimme Shelter and Sympathy for the Devil and stuff like that, you know. Um, it just added a dynamic to it. They brought in the saxophone. Bowie had played saxophone on some of the songs on All the Young Dudes. Andy Mackay played saxophone on All the Way from Memphis. They started bringing in other elements to improve the songs. You know, you're... I think the thing that Bowie did teach them that the studio is an in, is an instrument in itself, and worry about playing it live later. Let's if this song demands three girl backing vocals or it demands a saxophone, let's do it. And if you haven't got a saxophone player, you play it on a guitar. Nobody's going to really care six months down the road. The record will always be better for expanding your horizons of it from instrumentation point of view. So I think that's one thing that they learned from working with Bowie was to not limit themselves. The same way that you can imagine when Queen were in in um, in the studio doing Bowie Rhapsody and they get to the middle section, the Galileo section, somebody in the band must have gone, how the hell are we going to do this live? Fred would have gone, yeah. who cares? I am not limiting myself to can we do it live? If it's in my head, I want to put it down on tape. And this is a much less extreme version, but they started to do that on the, 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 the last two studio albums. And Mott being the one that just elevated them into the top division. All right, so, so going off of uh, the statement I read and being that at one point, you know, Def Leppard is one of the biggest bands in the fucking world. How do you keep your ego in check when you're this huge star and, and, and people are just, I mean, I mean, we saw how big Def Leppard got They're like, some well, of the it's not odd if you come from Sheffield the <laughs> of the UK, you know, um, it's a very steel industrial city. Factories, coal mines, that's what you're all expected to do. Um, unless you're born with a, you know, Einstein's brain and then your parents will shove you towards being a doctor or something. Um, we were very fortunate that, you know, I mean, when I was growing up as a kid, we didn't have much. So you had, you know, your parents instilled a sense of realism into your growing up. Um, then you start to nibble away, you know, you get the pubic, you know, you, you, you get pubic and puberty kicks in and, you start getting the hot sweats over the girls and stuff like this, and the glam rock comes in, and colour TVs come in, and you've got everything from Bowie, Bowl, and Slade, Sweet, Mock, Queen. It's like bam, boozled with rainbow colours in your eyes when you watch your top of the pops. And then four years later, when you're 16 and 17, and you've got your first job, punk rock comes along, yeah. and it shows you that all these kids just went, "I can do that," and they did it. And I thought, oh, so can we, but we were a bit more musical than most punk bands. So you've got all these mad emotions going off, but at the same time, you're anchored down to, don't get too ahead of yourself, son. <laughs> all this kind of yeah. stuff. So, you know, listen, it's a fact of life that probably in the first three months of the Pyromania tour, when it really kicked off, we probably did lose ourselves in it all a little bit. Yeah. Somebody would have taken us to one side and said, back off. 
you know, and we'd have all kept ourselves in check. It could have been management, could have been one of us in the band, because one of us is off oity-toity enough to, you know, never, never land or whatever. But generally speaking, when you come from a working class background and you, you're not born into money, um, sure. you're, you're more appreciative of any that you earn and any success that you get. I just think, you know, it's the same thing about not wanting to piss people off. You catch more flies with sugar than you do with vinegar and or honey with vinegar than vinegar. And, and we've always thought that, you know, keep everybody on ch in check, keep everybody on side. They're going to like us more if if we make great music, but we're not arseholes. And we've never yeah. been. You know, it's, do you have it? It's in our DNA not to. So For sure. we've always, we joke about it, that we take our ego off and put it on a hook when we get off stage. And when we're walking to the stage, we take it off, put it on like an invisible cloak, be yeah. the rock star while you're on stage. And when you're not on stage, you know, you're just shaving and showering and doing whatever else you do in the bathroom, like everybody else. Like everybody else. Yeah. But was there a moment, though, that that it was like you where somebody had to really check you? You're like, holy shit, dude. I didn't even realize I was doing that where the ego was just. I don't think so. I mean, I've had my moments, but there'd be nothing to do with being a rock star. I mean, yeah. occasionally, I, I can be a bit caustic with my sarcasm, uh, but it's normally because somebody's trying, trying it on. You know, you go into a bar and some guy, you're, you're a guest in some city and there's some local guy who's, you know, cock of the north, in, in, you're in his territory, but all of a sudden the spotlight's on us because we're deaf leopard and he starts getting mouthy. Um, there's been times where we'll, any one of us had to turn around and, and, you know, belittled them somewhat. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, can cause, you know, friction. <laughs> but it, you don't do it to normal people. <laughs> you know For I mean? sure. It's like, I never never felt the need. I mean, I've, it's just, I, I, I'm not, I don't really do that circuit. I'm not really big in a, you don't see me on the red carpet that often or, you know, I've never been in the gossip columns. We're not that kind of band. We're no, no. someone with a radar compared to your M&Ms 20 years ago or Beyonce or Taylor Swift or Katy Perry or whoever's the big thing at the moment, you know. Um, we turn up and sell out a stadium, but nobody knows who we are. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, in, yeah. In the sense of, in that kind of media. So there's nothing for us to get kind of, wound up about really good good i could tell i can tell it's positive vibes you know it's a huge ego jeremiah and morty morty <laughs> enormous morty you got anything i see you have something about thunder thighs I do, I do so the backing vocals as you said is by thunder thighs it's the uh uh they also sang the doot doo doos on the walk on the wild side for lou reed oh no shit yeah, the color girls. And then the line in this song, which is which is sometimes make people appropriated to being about Bowie, is you ain't the Naz, you're just a buzz, some kind of temporary. And then he leaves it hanging. But apparently he said twat or twat. Oh, yeah. No, he, he used to say twat live. I've got yeah. a bunch of bootlegs where he goes, twat. <laughs> Yeah. And so that became you know a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> they asked him not to. Again, people read into things. If you've been logical, you'd think he was singing about Todd Rundgren because he was right. in the Naz. Yeah, Alice Cooper, because they were in their band called the Naz, and they had to change their name because of right. Todd Rundgren. You know, so again, it's it's great storylines. None of us know if they're true. Even half the band probably don't even know. Yeah, you know? yeah. But Thunder Thighs released a couple of singles on their own. They had a song called Central Park Arrest that was nearly a hit in the UK, but yeah. not quite. <laughs> not quite. Not quite. 
Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenge Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. All right, uh, let's talk about uh, Honolulu Buggy. This first single was the British follow-up to All the Young Dudes and it went to number 12, which helped them prove they could succeed outside of Bowie's shadow. Now, because there's, I feel like there's a little like dynamic between this and and your music because the gibberish word Honolulu was only intended to be a placekeeper in the lyrics to be replaced later, but the band encouraged Ian to leave it. So uh, I know you've you've answered this before, but I'm sure we'd love to hear uh, eepin, gloopin, gloppin, gleepin. I wish you could pronounce it properly. It's, it's Gunterglieben, Glaubensglauben. Yeah, sorry. whatever. Um, yeah, that was Mark, that was Mark Lang when we see, when we were writing those songs. We didn't have the lyrics or melodies. Mark had this idea how it would work, and rock and roll is by nature. It's one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. It's, you know, we don't throw in a, a, a seven, eight timing unless you're in like Steely Dan. Um, so everything was mapped out and it was all rock and roll. Chuck Berry, Little Richard, it was all there. Um, but to keep, we had this little guitar tag that was going to go between when the vocals got written, whichever vocal it was. And to count the guys in, Mutt would say one, two, three, four, while doing rehearsals and then into the studio. And eventually the one, two, three, four gets boring. And he started saying all these other mad things. One of them was chapati, poppadom, and it was two of the things off an Indian menu. Um, but the Gunterglieb and Glass and was just like mock German, I guess. And it just became the cabin fever in-joke. And by the time we got to the end of the record, we said, is that thing still there? Let's snip it onto the front of the song. Because it was our in-joke to ourselves, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then and as regards market lyrics, we've done it loads of times. Uh, Armageddon it off the Asteria album. When we were putting the chorus together, we started singing um, Give Me All Your Loving because I think ZZ Top had been on TV in Holland and it just fitted the thing. And we sang it for like, you know, we it left it there for three months. And then we got so used to it. When it I don't know whether Billy Gibbons is going to give a shit or not whether we use this line. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. Just leaving it in because A, by that time of the album, we couldn't be bothered to think of anything else. B, we couldn't think of anything else because we'd run out of energy. And it sounded great and we didn't care. Yeah. You know, it wasn't nonsensical, 
But um, we've done plenty of nonsense. I mean, the word mysteria, as far as I'm aware, doesn't exist. But we use it in the song hysteria. So, again, these are the little things in the back of your mind that you do it. So, well, they sang on a Lucci Boogie, so we can sing Mysteria. You, you kind of kind of reference them almost subconsciously. There's millions of artists that have done certain things that we would say, well, it worked for them. I mean, you know, there's no better example than what bop a bop a lot bam boom two three four <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. You know, I mean, what you know, but so I wouldn't want to hear anything else. Uh, no, ever. God no. It's yeah. it's perfect, and I can imagine how many parents' noses went out of joint when they heard their kids singing this and going, "What is this nonsense?" <laughs> you know, and you hear stories of this FBI or the CIA or whoever it was doing like, you know, months worth of research on the lyrics to Louie Louie because they thought it was some kind of communistic code. And it's, you know, because you can't tell what he's singing, you know, and especially if you would listen to Iggy Pop's version, yeah. <laughs> even more so. But, um, you know, the, the thing with Honolucci Boogie is, there's a, the, like I say, it was the first single, I think, after... Um, All the Young Dudes, yeah. It has a similar kind of intro in the sense of like it's got a guitar lick that brings in the song. Um, it's a bit more up-tempo than Dudes, um, which is nice because, you know, it's like when Elton John broke in, in the UK, he broke with your song. And then we had like Rocky Man and people were starting to think, is that is that where we're going with this? And then he'd come out with Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting and going, okay, there's yeah. another element here. So what you've got with, with, with Mott is you had Honolucci Boogie followed by All The Way From Memphis as their next two singles. Now they're establishing themselves as a full-on rock band. To those that weren't fans in the first place that destroyed the Albert Hall in 1971 or bought the first three, first four albums on Ireland that basically nobody did buy. I mean, they sold, they could sell out the Albert Hall and they didn't even chart with their albums. You'd think that the fans that, that bought tickets would buy the albums and if they did, that have bought enough copies of the album to actually get it to chart. It didn't make any sense to anybody, you know. Yeah. But they started charting after Bowie, and then with hit singles, it became a little easier. Ian has said in the past, he says, he turned around to the band and said, I've got it. And he said, what? He says, the formula. He says, he's getting <laughs> to death. Because he says, it was a little bit like being Neil Sedaka, where you turn up nine to five to write these songs for other people, the way that most people do carpentry. And he didn't. He he never saw himself that way. So he broke his own mold later on. But he did have it, you know, because Honolulu Boogie is a great pop song. Great, you know, song. it's it's guitar based, but it is a pop song, you know, and it's got some amazing lyrics. And the whole singing down the nose bit, you know, is so brilliant. Yeah, you know, I've got this friend. He's a spider. Is a spider jiver, or what, what? I can't remember the words now. You know, spider messiah, and all this, stuff, which is another leaning towards Bowie. You know, and yeah. the way they do it. You know, but he has converted me to rock and roll, and then he goes, wah, 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 wah. You know, it's like all these strange sounds that your average rock band wouldn't dare touch. They were brave enough to go to places that seven British seventies bands would do. Bowie would do it, and. Roxy Music would do it, and and later on, Peter Gabriel, when he left Genesis, would do it. And there was a mm -hmm. few you know, Sparks. They were eccentric um, in in their early hits, and uh, and and Roy Wood from the Move when he formed the band Wizard, who were a big influence on Ian. You know, he, he yeah. tells 
everybody that see my baby jive saved his life in 1973 and they had the same kind of dynamics very kind of phil Spectorish productions um, and just wacky off the wall production ideas because they were moving into new territory they were moving into 16 track recording which they yeah. hadn't had before so they could do these little mad things that oh, i wish we had enough tracks to do this well now you do and and it expanded their horizons a lot yeah um, all right, well, they said something about eccentric, so I want to move into the next song because it's kind of like this parody of their volatile group dynamic, uh, and it's still pretty cold-hearted despite the weirdly sweet chorus in violence. And plus, you have this insane violin solo played by Graham Prescott and the band just busting into the song around the 3 minute and 52 second mark. JT. <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's just, that's just insane. Like, just such a centric to be able to put them fighting on the record. Uh, thoughts on it? He did get a bit feisty in the studio from what I've heard. Um, when you guys have got t- two minutes, and you should listen to the Down and Outs version of Violence, we actually did the fight scene as well. <laughs> so we actually, we didn't fight, we just pretended to fight. And and uh, Sinead Madden, who is Def Leppard's uh, assistant production manager, is a violinist. But she's, she normally plays with Moya Brennan from Clanad, very Irish, lilting kind of melodies. She, I said, can you play this, the Prescott um, violin? You know, the, the kind of, um, it's Paganini type style, gypsy, you know, violin and stuff. And she said, well, I'll give it a go. So I said, well, I sent her the MP3 of the song, the Mott song. And she emailed me back going, bloody hell. Uh, I don't know if I can do that. She spent a year learning how to do it, and she nailed it, you know. Um, but Kevin, but Prescott, bang, he would have nailed it day one because he has that headspace. Again, it's eccentric, you know. That whole song, the dynamics of that song are fantastic. It starts off with the drum thing, which is it's not really a beat. It's more like an expression, if you like, uh, kind of call to arms. And then when the guitar lick comes in at the, at the beginning, it's not as big as you think. It's one guitar. And then halfway through, the second one comes in and it's got this big swell of, 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 of like an arpeggio thing going, which almost sounds violent. And then, he, you know, I'm a missing link, pool room stink, I can't talk. This set punk rock off. There's no punk whether it be any member of the Pistols or the Clash is going to say, yeah, I thought that song was a bit wussy. That was the kind of music that got Steve Jonesy from the Pistols and Mick Jones from the Clash playing guitar. Yeah. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll admit to it anytime you talk to them. That, you know, it was punk rock three years before its time. And it really was so unusual. I mean, I'd never heard a band been so violent on record you know i mean i, I obviously i missed this this some of the stooges stuff from 1969 it was relatively violent or the mc5 but they were actually singing about violence and doing it in a not comical way but a dramatic way it was almost like a three-minute mini opera 
uh, movie, if you like, without pictures. You know, it really had so much dyna- dynamic within it that um, it's one of those songs that I remember when I listened to it because it's the last track on side one. I would lift the needle and put it back on and let it play out and let it play out and let it play out because it really, it never made me want to go out and beat anybody up. It kind of just made, it, it, it frightened me in a novel way, the way that watching Clockwork Orange would. Yes. You know? And I think a lot of, I think Clockwork Orange had a lot to do with everybody's thought process of writing stra- strange songs around that period of time. Yeah. Uh, so you're talking about uh, Rowdy. So I wanted to ask you, because you probably played in some in, in front of some insane audiences, what was the rowdiest audience you ever played to? Uh, South America, 1996. We were in Bogota, I think it was. Um, it was one of the Central American countries or South American countries where we were in a bull ring and the walls were made out of stone, and they were probably 20, 25 feet high. So it was kind of like a prison. And we, we were sold out, but there was like thousands of kids couldn't get in. And they started throwing rocks over the wall onto the kids in the in the crowd. Whoa. And it got it got pretty violent, you know, it got really hairy. It made the front page of the their local paper the next day. We managed to get a copy before we got on the plane out of, <laughs> out of the country. And there's you know, flares going off. It was like a full-on riot, you know. It, that was pretty crazy. We could when The photographs we saw the next day were taken close up to where it happened. We could just see in the distance flares. We couldn't see rocks because yeah. it's dark and you've got spotlights in your eyes. But, um, you know, we learned after the fact that it was like, Glad you guys weren't anywhere near that side of the venue because it was pretty grim. I I'm, think the, the cops went, "I'm out of here." I'm almost positive we had I'm, we had Matt's we had Matt Sorum on the podcast from and he played with Guns N' Roses and the Cult, and I'm almost positive he said the exact same. Not like the, the throwing the rocks, but like the craziest place he had ever been to was Bogotan. I've played with Matt and and Duff and Slash and Gilby in in the Rock and Roll All Stars with Gene Simmons and. You know, the Kings of Chaos. And we, we did a tour over there. And it was really strange. You know, we'd be playing this kind of polo field in front of 30,000 people. And I remember Duff coming up to me and going, man, he says, people don't sing at Guns N' Roses songs. They're just mosh. He says, but, you know, because he was playing bass on like, we, we did like Animal and Sugar. And he says, but they sing your stuff. And I'm going, yeah, but when we do these gigs, everybody sings that stuff, but they don't mosh. (laughs) He was like wishing that they sang, and I was wishing that I was moshed a bit more. It was a bizarre kind of juxtaposition between the two of us, like, never happy, are you, you know? Yeah. Um, But they are crazy there, and they're loud, which is why the singing thing comes to mind. And when they they start pogoing and bashing, they're banging into each other, knocking each other over. It's a sight to behold. Sure. I can imagine. I can imagine. Morty, is there anything you want to add? Yeah, just the one thing is when Ian and uh, when Ian and Mick worked on this, they had a, a fight or a row, if we're going to be English. And this is when Mick decided he was going to quit the band after the record. Apparently, that's according to Mick. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, he did. He, he hung around for a little while. Um, yeah. He did. They did because he did some shows up to the summer, and then he when he left, they they had to hastily get a guitarist in because they had more shows booked. 
maybe a month later, which is why they got Luther Grosvenor or Ariel Bender. Ariel Bender. <laughs> he wasn't allowed to perform under the name Luther Grosvenor because I think he was still contracted to Island Records. So um, the name Ariel Bender was actually given to him by Lindsay DePaul. She was at a TV show in, in, in Europe with Mott the Hoople, one of these kind of top of the pops type things in Belgium or Sweden or whatever. And they all went out on, on the piss afterwards and Mick Ralph was hammered. And he walked down the street bending all the aerials on the cars. When cars yeah. used to have aerials drilled yeah, through them. Yeah. Yeah. And he bent them all. And she went, oh, look, aerial bender. And he stuck. Now, they didn't obviously give that name to Mick, but the thing that Mick did to create that name was given to Luther Grosvenor. Great stage name, Ariel Bender, because the great thing about Bender was if he'd have been Luther Grosvenor, he'd have been a bit more conservative. But because he was playing a role, he lost the plot. And he just, you know, they, the, even and, and, and Bender on stage would literally beat each other up almost, shoving each other yeah. out of the way for the spotlight and stuff like that. But yeah, Ralph hung around until mid, mid summer of, middle of 1973, and then he was uh, seen to be in bad company, as it says on the, uh, the last Mott Hoople album cover. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan, and this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street. All right, let's pick it up for side two, Driving Sister, uh, with Buffin's rolling drum intro and sound effects. Here's the first driving and car metaphor of the album, the song Half Moon Bay playing on the car's eight track is from their debut record. But in my opinion, this song sounds exactly like Jerkin' Crocus. So let me ask you this, because uh, there are so many rock stars that celebrate their first taste of success by buying a flashy car. So I want to ask you, what was the first ridiculous thing you bought after your first big payday? I didn't buy anything ridiculous. I'm really boring. I bought a house. <laughs> it's not ridiculous, you know. It's not at all. No. The what? first flashy car I ever bought, I still own. Because it just became a badge of honor to never get rid of it. So Porsche 944 is oh. 36 years old. Oh, God. And it's got like 50,000 miles on it. And that's it. You know, oh, that's a you know. beautiful car. So have what's the what's the most ridiculous thing that you've ever bought? You've bought like you even bought like a yacht, have you? No, no. good for you. I don't buy ridiculous things. Um 
No, not really. I just, no, I've never been that kind of guy. For me, a car is a fantastic metaphor in the song, but in reality, it's just something to get from A to B. (laughs) So I don't have a, I don't have the rock star love affair with motors. I mean, I like a decent car, but when somebody goes, oh yeah, I just spent 400,000 on this Porsche that used to belong to Eric Clapton, I just go, uh okay <laughs> you know, it's, not for me. it's just not for me did you ever see anybody while you guys were starting off that made you kind of not do that like did were there any rockstars you don't have to name names but you just saw like oh, yeah, holy yeah. shit how ridiculous is that what they just bought how much money they're spending on that and did they i ever- will never ever forget an interview with a uh, uh gary glitter who we, we can't really know we talk about these days <laughs> can't talk about gary no more yeah but um he he was in the papers when i was 14 and he was talking about how his life was going down the tubes uh financially because the hits had dried up and he said yeah i spent like four thousand pounds on curtains <laughs> i remember thinking if my mom reads this she's gonna have a fit because my mom probably spent like four pounds on her curtains for that. <laughs> I just want to amend something real quick, because this is for all the people that don't know that are listening to the podcast. The reason they call me the king of fleece, which is what they call me, Joe, is I inherited 40 grand when I was a senior in high school for my great uncle. And I burned through it so fast. I gave half to my parents. But then one day I went to the mall and I spent two thousand dollars on fleeces. Fleece. Why? <laughs> oh, no, they're they're popular. I was cold. I was always cold, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah, listen, there's always an answer to a question like why. <laughs> so um, going back to this, go, yeah, the, the 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 money thing is it's to me it was never a motivation. And I yeah, every time I've read an interview about everything from like James J, uh, Jimi Hendrix died with twelve pounds in the bank to all these bands getting ripped off by management because they didn't have it down. We were always determined never to let that happen to us. And we, if we fell, we fell by our own doings. We could never go, I told you so, and finger point. I yeah. always wanted us to be in charge of, of every aspect of our career. So when we failed, we couldn't blame anybody else. But it gave us that freedom to, to always be brave enough to try new things or whatever, you know. So That's smart. That's so smart. You know, the money thing was, was it's, it's interesting to watch, you know, these – when Hammer bought that house in in LA and he had the MC Hammer gates and, and then he bought the airplane and he flew all his mates around the plane and we were just watching this from this was probably during hysteria time and thinking, well, that's gonna last about six weeks <laughs> and then it's gonna be gone, <laughs> you know. I mean as soon as the money dries up, so do the mates, funnily enough. They all seem to just fall up by the wayside, you know. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, man. It's how smart of you guys. And the Porsche that's not extravagant. That's a beautiful, that's, that's like an, that's the most beautiful car in the world. It's, he it's, was it's to a 23 year old kid from Sheffield. You know, he was pretty, if I'd have, if I'd have gone back to Sheffield in that car, they'd have keyed it. You know, my yeah. mates would have gone, oh, oh, you know, Ford Escort, not good enough for you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> It'd be one of those. But, but yeah. no, but you can't, you can't be driving a Ford Escort. You you're a uh, rock star. If you showed up in a Toyota Celica, I would tell you to go fuck yourself. It's allowed in one. It's, it's allowed in one situation: an emergency rental car. Yes, for sure. That, that's allowed. But other than that, you know, <laughs> other than that, it's you can't. Morty, you got anything to add? Yeah. Ian quit in '74 after a breakdown due to nervous exhaustion from running the band. So they'll. 
there's more of that in the in the bio. But yeah, that's he he sort of ran himself down trying to take care of it, you know, after mix after mix split. Joe, were there any well, moments? It got it got he got a little hairy after after um there's, there's great stories that I heard from Pete Watts when I got to know him. For example, when, when Ralph left, Mott had just done this tour of the UK with an opening act called Hackensack. And Hackensack's guitarist was this guy called Ray Major, who eventually became the guitarist in Mott, the abbreviated version of the band, which had uh, Ray Major and Nigel Benjamin singing. Remember earlier I mentioned that Nigel Benjamin was once in the band London with Nicky Six. Um, they, Mott, you know, this is technology in 73. Mott sent a telegram to um, Ray Major asking him if he wanted to join Mott. This is before they got Bender. And the singer of Hackensack intercepted the telegram and tore it up. Oh. So poor old Ray never got it, never got the, the, the memo. Hmm. So then they went with Bender. And uh, eventually, after Bender left, they went with Mick Ronson for a couple of weeks. And that didn't work out either, well, a couple of months. And then Rono and, and Ian buggered off to New York and Mark carried on with said guitarist Ray Major and Nigel Benjamin. Hmm. So there you go. So we haven't even rest. talked about Driving Sister yet, about what a great song it is. Tell now. me, well, dive in, bro. Like, the rolling drums from Buffin at the beginning, the engine revving. Again, this is the dynamics that they were probably borrowed from... Uh, with good intentions from Bowie. I mean, I don't remember any Bowie songs with cars, engines revving on it, but it's the idea of taking it further than just drums, bass, guitar, and voice and piano. Is use the studio, use sound effects, do this, that, and the other. And if you've got a song called Driving Sister, then you might as well have a few screechy tires on it and stuff like yeah. that. And they, they, they use it a bit. In the middle section, there's this brilliant section in the middle where the, the, there's like staccato chords and then the song stops. And in the gaps, that's where they put the truck, putting it going into gear in the car going. And if you're wearing headphones, which was awesome in 80, in 73, the car, the, the Doppler effects of the car going left to right or right to left, whichever way it is, was stunning as a 13 year old kid to where this car go from one ear to the other. And it was just really cool. And then back into the last chorus. Mick also does that really great solo with the volume Right, where he's hitting, oh, yeah, it, where yeah. he hits it. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Really rad. How he's basically hits the chord, or hits the you know hits the chord, and then he pulls his volume up, so it just fades yeah. in. It fades in like a violin. Yeah, it's beautiful. You know, it's, it's, he's a very underrated guitarist, Mick Ralphs. You talk to Phil or Vivian, even and Steve Clark when he was alive, they would say he's got really tasty licks. Phil will rattle on about Ralph uh, all day long. Phil's big thing about guitarists is they've got to have good vibrato. And both Mick Ronson and Mick Ralph's got fantastic vibrato. Um, you know, Ralph was never a widdly, widdly kind of guitarist. He's a subtle kind of laid back guy. You know, you can tell that from his songwriting on the early Mott records even to the songwriting that he did with Bad Company, there was power there. Because, um, you know, you I mean, you obviously, I'm talking to somebody that knows better than I do, but Can't Get Enough by Bad Co was actually written for Mott. Yeah. Um, but he couldn't sing it. And it's, it's actually a rewrite of um, One of the Boys off the All the Young Dudes album. And Ready for Love was a Mott song off the All the Young Dudes album. Moving on, 
Mott recorded before Bad Company, but they never released it. It only ever came out on a posthumous box set. So there was a lot of overlap. The Bad Company first album was leftover Mott ideas that that Ralpher couldn't get. He couldn't. Ian couldn't sing Ralpher's ideas, and Paul Rogers could. So again, there's a correlation there between uh, Mott and Bad Company. I think I love every single song off of all the young dudes. I think out of, we've been doing this journey for almost for over two years now. And I, I still just that's I just re-listened to it while we were doing the break between the first taping of this and the second taping. And I'm like, I think it's just a perfect album. Perfect album. That's an, an interesting observation. It would absolutely not be my first Mott album to go to at all. The really? song. Absolutely. I think the album sounds thin and reedy. Um, there's some good material there, which sounds yeah. fantastic on the live album. But I think the Mott album and the Hoople album are much better records. I actually think Wildlife is a much better record. Dominant dudes. Compared to All The Other Dudes, it's a different band because they even the band used to call it Mild Life because it sounded <laughs> so laid back. But um, there's some good stuff on there, but I, I really don't like the Vernon Allen song, Soft Ground. I just It's just the wrong side of... Hold You're not on. wrong. You're not wrong, but but ready for love, jerk and crocus, all uh, one of the boys. I could do, you know, all the young dudes. Right, yeah. Sweet Jane, even boys. Sweet Jane. Yeah, Sweet Jane, one of the boys is fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. All right, let's move on to Ballad of Mott the Hoople. Uh, so with Ian getting real and raw about what a life on the road is really like, this also mentions the loss of Mick Rouse guitar, as well as a contractually obligated rock and roll circus tour they had to do for Island Records after they left the label. The sights and for the sound. So when I talk about the contractually obligated tour, um, they, they they went to Ireland because you know that Bowie helped them out of their island contract to get on to get on Columbia CBS, and basically they got cornered and they went, okay, that's cool, but by the way, if you don't do this tour, you will never work in the music industry again. And so that was a big part of them having to go out on this tour. And, you know, when you go out on something like that, it's easy to see all the bad in it. So, yeah, they, the, the, the parenthetical reference of 26 March 1972 Zurich is the show that they broke up at. So that's like what this is like the ballad. Just basically he's telling you, here's how the band broke up. But then we wrote it as a ballad for the next record. And uh, let's see, uh, as he referred to this, when he, they were at the gig and they played in like, as, as Joe had said earlier, they played in basically a converted like gas, like container, whatever, like it's like, like some place out wherever. And it was crap and nobody was there. And he said, if this is fame, then forget it. And that's when they came back. And then obviously Bowie resurrected their career. So it's kind of interesting to actually talk about the band in the past tense on a record that becomes like this huge record as like the next step. Yeah, he was. It's like it was like um, it was like a kind of a, a time machine moment or a resurrection, if you like. He's writing, he's writing the the epitaph of a band that's not actually got that's been brought back to life, which again leads us to a beautiful metaphor for the following album with Roll Away the Stone. We're getting all Easter and biblical here, but um, the the lyrics. This is where Hunter was always a great lyric writer in my 
humble opinion, but this is where it really came to the forefront. I think a combination of experience, having more things to write about, being a little bit older than everybody else, because Ian was 30 when they made their first album. Um, being a Dylan fan, so he had good reference points to steal from. Um, and and the fact that the, the word on the street and in the papers back in the day was that, oh, they can't do it unless Bowie's producing. So they had all this like, we'll show you kind of attitude when they went in there. And they really pulled out all the stops on this record to prove to everybody once and for all that they could stand on their own two feet without David Bowie. Grateful for his help always, but they had to move on. They didn't want Bowie to do the next record. Otherwise they really would have been stuck in that kind of, you know, under Bowie's wing forever. Um, but with this album, they went in the studio, the, I think both in Watsy and, and Ian produced the album. I mean, they're credited as producing it, but we all know, you know, amazing engineering by Bill Price. It's an incredible sounding record. It's 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 real, it's clean, it's clever, it's dirty when it needs to be sonically, but it's got everything in the right place. So consequently, it sounded amazing when it came out, but it still sounded great 10 years later, 20, 30, 40 years later amazing record you know never gets old whenever you're in memphis on the radio it never sounds twee or small like say early kink songs yeah it sounds huge you know it's it just does. got great sonics you know and when you listen to the song and you listen to the lyrics when he's telling this story his voice fits perfectly with the lyric so when he's when he's going through each band member's uh eccentricity moment you know Buffin uh, lost his childlike dreams and Mick lost his guitar and blah, blah, blah. Um, he's, he's, he's a very poignant voice. But then when it gets to the kick-ass chorus or pre-chorus, there isn't really a chorus. It's just the next section. His voice goes up. It goes up in intensity, goes up in pitch. And it just it's just wonderful dynamics. And one of the greatest lyrics of all time, I've had it painted around the wall of my studio lounge. So I see it every day when I'm at home. Rock and roll's a loser's game. It mesmerizes and I can't explain the reason for the sight and for the sound. The grease paint still sticks to my face, but what the hell, I can't erase that rock and roll feeling from my mind. Dot, yeah. dot, dot. <laughs> um, I, I had the words finished too soon, so I had to put dots in. <laughs> but, uh, great lyric, you know. It's great just, lyric. It tells the story, you know, rock and roll's a loser's game. For, for 99% of the people that ever picked up a guitar as a kid and wanted to join a band, it is. They all ended up quitting and getting a day job. Only yeah. the elite few got passed, or the lucky few, whatever you want to call them, you know. I was I was doing a show in, in Ohio last night and there was a band that came to see me and Big J that are fans of his and like they're all guys late 30s early 40s but they're still have that rock and roll mindset it's one of the hardest things to give up is like you know you, some people aren't realistic about it where it's like you can try and you care about it so much but it's just it just sometimes it just doesn't fucking happen. Yeah, no. absolutely right. It all depends on your mindset, you know. I mean, we we were thrown to the wolves during the grunge period, but we we were determined not to do what the seventies bands did when we came along, which was roll over, tickle my tummy, and then just die off. You know, we just thought we'd fight them back, you know, and we knew it'd take a long time. We, we when we made the Slang album in '96, 
we knew we were going back to ground zero and jokingly the working title for the album was commercial suicide because we knew it kind of was, but we knew we had to go back down to start again. So we had two different careers, but we had that goal to want to do that. And we were fortunate that we had an audience from the past that were still there. They just needed encouragement to come, come back more often, if you like. Because, you know, when you've sold 10 million albums twice, your audience doesn't really go away. You know, your Pearl Jam's and your Nirvana's audience are actually mostly different people. Yeah. So yeah. it's just a case of you have to understand that when a kid's 17 and he buys every single thing that you've put out, you know, bobblehead dolls, to <laughs> cassettes, T-shirts, scarves, sooner or later that kid gets married and then he's got a mortgage and kids. And yeah. they, they have to go through that whole cycle of when their kids get older, if we're still around, they come back. You know, yeah. and that's how the Rolling Stones survived and, and Aerosmith and ACDC and, and Paul McCartney. I mean, most of his audience are close to being pensionable now, but they still in their mind, still Beatles fans from 1963. I get now, totally. All right, uh, I'm a Cadillac El Camino Dolo Rosso. All right, so the first part of this, before the extended lovely instrumental section is another pretty standard love as a car or driver metaphor. Despite people thinking of Ian as the band's lead singer, there were several songs like this that were written and sung by Mick Ralphs. Thoughts on this? Joe, what do you got? It's a great song. It's only way it works for me is it, it, it's a perfect place to put a song that Ian didn't sing. Um, it's placed at the right spot to just give the album a, um, a breather or a, a lift or a, 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 just a change of direction. Come in, what is it? It's um, kind of two thirds or almost three quarters of the it's album. going to last, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's beautifully arranged song and, and that kind of... Um, staccato run that Ralph does on his guitar underneath his vocal going up towards, you know, the end of the verse. It's a really understated, beautifully played piece, you know, and um, it leads into like one of the most gloriously pop choruses that, that Mick Ralph's ever wrote, you know, and this was just as his voice was at its peak. You know, Mick Ralph's couldn't possibly sing like that anymore because he smoked too much. But at that time, he was still a young man in his 20s. And he just had a beautiful voice when he, when he pushed it. And he, he didn't have to push it too far, but he pushed it just enough to sound more than just a breathy singer. And it's, it's a gorgeous chorus. The whole, the whole way that song builds is, it's about a big fan. And again, he did what they did on the, on the, on the, uh, the Dudes album by putting this extended instrumental on the end, which has got some just amazing yeah, uh, guitar echo, you know, pull off stuff where he's he's using the echo plex or whatever they had to be part of the song. So I mean, that's that's not a an easy thing to do in analog, you know, in, a, in an analog way because you had to dial the speed of it in by hand, and if the drummer sped up or slowed down, your echo was going to go out of time. So mm -hmm. it was, you know, they either got really lucky or they were a lot cleverer than people ever gave them credit for. Hmm. More, you got anything? So we just want to let the listeners in the Fleece Army know about a few songs you might not have known were originally written by Ian Hunter. 
because this, even I didn't realize this. So you all know, most people know, Great White had a top five hit with Once Bitten, Twice Shy. That was uh, the presidents of the United States covered Cleveland Rocks for the title song of the Drew Carey show. And then this is the one that I never realized growing up with my mom. I don't know if you did too, dude. Barry Manilow went to top 10 with Hunter's tender ode to his complicated relationship with his father, Ships. If you haven't gotten a chance to listen to either, first of all, Barry Manilow's version, you would never know this was like an Ian Hunter song. But Ian Hunter's version is great, too. He had a really weird, bad relationship with his dad. This song is heartbreaking. I saw Barry Manilow in concert and cried to this song. And when I found out it was written, it blew my mind. If you ever get a chance to listen to it, I cannot, I cannot more highly recommend Ships. It's a beautiful song if you have any kind of relationship with your father. You got to make sure you enunciate that song because that sounded way different. <laughs> it was like, well, <laughs> you got no, Ships with Poncerelli. Ships. ships. Uh, no, I can't. It's, it's, yeah. I can't believe that. Uh, so you're telling me, and this is just me probably being stupid, is that Mott wrote Once Bitten, Twice Ian, Shy? Yeah, Ian Hunter. God, well, he, it, was, it was Ian's first song post Mott. It was his first, his track one, sorry, side yeah. one of his first solo album, 75. And and as big a hit in the UK as any Mott single was, pretty much. Oh, that's yeah. so crazy. All right, uh, last song on the record, I Wish I Was Your Mother. Here is Ian at his most Bob Dylan, down to the haunting harmonica and Mick Rouse, incredible mandolin playing shows how versatile he was on string instruments. Uh, JT, play it. I think this is a perfect song to end the record with. I think it kind of is, it's almost like gliding you out in this very beautiful way, very calming. Thoughts on this, guys? Totally, you nailed it. The word gliding is is a perfect description for, it is a great way to, I can't imagine this song being anywhere but last. Exactly. It's, it's, it's licking the envelope closed and putting it in the post box. It's, it's a beautiful way to end, a, to end an album and, Arguably, Hunter's best ever lyric, um, at least at the time. I mean, there's a, he's written a, some damn good lyrics since in the last 45 years since that album came out, whatever it is, 50 years since that album came out. He's written some amazing stuff, but it's just a brilliant, brilliant lyric. It is very Dylan-esque. Um, everything about it, the story, he keeps you hooked. You know, like I said, he... I mentioned at the beginning on the last part of the, the interview how a lot of these songs, they don't mean anything to somebody that doesn't speak English. But if you've got your head around all the classic writers, you know, whether it be um, John Fogerty, Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, uh, Cosby Stills, Nash & Young, whoever you, you go to, you know, writer is, Hunter's lyrics are right up there, if not beyond, in fairness, you know, because I don't think his standards ever dropped very much. But on this particular song, he nailed it. I mean, even he must have been thinking, who am I channeling right now as I'm writing this? Because we've all done it. We think, wow, I didn't really write that, did I? It looks like something that T.S. Eliot would have written or Bob Dylan, <laughs> you know. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful song. And like you say, mix 
mandolin playing. That even the fact that he's got that you wouldn't expect it to have full tempo drums all the way through, but it really works. And it comes down on the mandolin to half time and then kicks into double time for the chorus. It's it's just perfect. It really is. Yeah, it really is a perfect song. Morty, uh, what do you got? Yeah, you know, besides, so he was talking about his dad's relationship with them. You know, people don't know that, you know, he left his wife and two young children to pursue rock and roll at the beginning of this. So when he talks about family, there's a lot of that. I think he had a lot of guilt and stuff about having given up, you know, rock and, you know, had given up a family life to go after rock and roll. And it really, it shows in this, and this is such an endearing song. Um, it's been covered by Maria McKee from Lone Justice, Drama Rama, shout out to John Easdale, and uh, Alejandro Escovedo. So it really does stand. It's, it's, a, it's, a, real, um, it's a real endearing and, and uh, um, sort of a, a heavy song to end the record with, besides just the Dylan part, when you know sort of his backstory. Mm -hmm. It is, but again, like I said, it's, it's lighthearted in its songdom, if you like. If you, for anybody that does, trust me, there are a lot of people out there that don't listen to the lyrics. They just hear the odd word and hum along. It's a very uplifting tune with a very, I wouldn't say it's a dark lyric, but it's a, it's a lyric where it, it, has, it has to be heard. You know, it's not a, a throwaway rock lyric by any means, and neither is the song. But it's it's a, it's it, to me it reminds me of there's a. I, it took me years to to actually get my head around the fact that when I heard "Help" by the Beatles, which was this great pop song banging along, that it's Lennon in massive pain. You just didn't hear it when you were five or six or seven or eight years old. It was just this great rock song, you know. But then you if you listen to the lyrics in isolation. He's basically, you know, it, the title sums it up. Help. help. <laughs> I need some help. You know? and, the, and the I wish I was your mother was is a little bit like that. The fact that he's saying I wish has tinges of, of regret right there, you know, uh, or longing at least, you know. And he is the master at writing that kind of a lyric. Yeah. Be better than Dylan in my eyes. I'm sorry, Bob Dylan fans, but he really is. He took Dylan and improved on it. You're gonna get some flack for that, dude. Okay. There's, uh, I'm, no, I'm glad. I've, dude, I've never been into him, and the way we're doing it on the podcast with this list is we're starting with like his later albums, like Time Out of Mind and Love and Love and Theft. Is that it? Yeah. And and it's like I just, you know, if we it would be different. I can't get into him because every song is like eight minutes long, and you know, it's just a lot. And maybe if we started with the older ones, I'd probably dig it more. But, you know, I get a lot of flack for that. But I'm glad you speak your truth, Joe. Speak no, your truth. It's just my opinion. That's all. And I love it. All right. Morty, you got any facts? Yep. So the cover of the U.S. version has this great photo of the band looking all cool with their name. It's all sleek and everything. <laughs> and then the U.K. version inexplicably has this stylized illustration of the bust of, of the Roman Emperor Augustus. And their name is like in this weird futuristic type style. So a lot of people had issue, had sort of an issue with that because they look awesome on the cover of that, the, and like the American version. <laughs> and That's an interesting observation yeah. because to us Brits who were a Brit band, the, the bust of, uh, which, who was it, which Roman Empire? It's, it's Augustus. Well, it's okay. based on so Augustus. Augustus. That was the sleeve. To us, that was the real sleeve. And, you know, it came, it was gatefold, but not a double. It was a single sleeve that folded out with a piece of plastic, with see-through perspex 
kind of you know plastic, see-through plastic, so that it it it, it wasn't just a hole. And so it was like it looked really expensive, and it was pink, and that that mock logo became their logo from that moment onwards, um, and that's all we ever knew. Cut to 1980. I'm in Pittsburgh. We're about to play the Stanley Theatre as special guests to Judas Priest, I think, because um, we played there a bunch of times. We opened for Ozzy there in 81. We opened for Blackfoot there. And I think we opened for, uh, we definitely opened for Priest there. But when we, whenever we were in Pittsburgh, I found a record store, and I don't remember what it was called, but it was upstairs above a laundrette or whatever. And this is where the the record company rep dumped all his freebies because they sold all the albums that said, not for resale, stamped in gold in the bottom corner. But they'd sell them for a dollar. And that's where I got all my Aerosmith albums and stuff. But that's where I discovered the American sleeve and went, what? <laughs> what is this? A, it was a four piece. There was no Verdon Allen because he'd left the band. They were in a photo studio with that lamp next to them and, you know, looking total rock stars. And I, of course, started asking people that I'd meet along the way that used to work for CBS and go, why did they change the sleeve in America? Story goes that they couldn't afford for the amount that they wanted to press up to do the fancy English one because they didn't have the facilities in America. Can you believe that? that they had in the UK to make such fancy dancy sleeves. So, you know, again, it's, uh, there's a lot of urban myth in all these stories, but I was it took six years before I saw that sleeve, or seven actually, seven years before I saw the American sleeve. And to me, it was like, kind of like finding the Holy Grail, if you like, because I loved the original, but to have the album again in a double, a double sleeve, single album, double sleeve with this, great photo on the front was mind-blowing it really was i want to ask you about images uh so let's let's talk about who came up uh with the union jack short shorts oh that was rick um rick allen bought them in a shop you know i mean in the uk especially at the coastal towns like you know skegness blackpool you know, all these kind of places where people will go on holiday because there's a beach they would always sell Union Jack plastic bowler hats and Union Jack spinning bow ties and, you know, all this British stuff. And they started selling Union Jack shorts, you know, but then they started selling it more inland as well. So you could get them on King's Road. You could get them anywhere. And um, he wore them in, on, on the 81 tour. So that became, um, that became his thing. In 1982, December of 82, we had just finished the majority of the Pyromania album, and we were shooting the video for Photograph on Phil's birthday, December, no, Sav's birthday. We shot the, both those videos, Rock of Ages and Photograph on birthdays. Sav's was on uh, December the 2nd, and Rock of Ages was shot December the 8th, which was Phil's birthday. December the 2nd, 1982, we were shooting a video. So on the 1st of December, um, I was given a, a, a budget of £25 to go and buy something to wear. <laughs> so I found these plastic, ple these pleather trousers that were awesome, but too short because I've got really long legs. So I bought these leg warmers that were like really in fashion at the time because of things like fame and stuff. I thought, well, that'll do. I wear my Converse or my Adidas basketball boots 
and then I'll put these leg warmers on to hide the fact that the trousers aren't long enough. Found this awesome belt with handcuffs on it. And then I had seven pounds left and I saw the Union Jack shirt for $6.99 on a shop wow. in King's Road. So I bought it. And, and that became, you know, between Rick Shorts and my shirt, it became like as big a statement as the who using the Absolutely. round circle that was painted on British World War II planes and stuff like that, you know. Yeah. Um, but it was an accident. It wasn't some, you know, great Japanese designer coming in going, oh, I think you should do it. <laughs> it was me going, shit, I've got seven quid left. What am I going to get? But uh, <laughs> that'll work. <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, Morty, you got another yeah. one? By the way, literally everybody in America overnight were wearing cut off British T-shirts. Like I was yeah, they perfect. were. It was huge. It was like you, nobody can but About six weeks into the Pyromania tour, um, our management came to us and said, we are going to get the T-shirt people to sell the shirt that Joe's wearing. And we went, all right, fine. You know, and it just became hilarious to see all these really young American people all wearing the Union Jack shirt. You know, it's like, great. You know, it's weird, but this is very cool. And it, it became the biggest selling shirt on the tour. Yeah, absolutely. It's, Bonkers. So the lyrics about joining the circus are apropos as the novel that Guy Stevens got them to change their name to was about an eccentric hustler that works at a circus freak show. That's what Moth the Hoople, the, the original book, I'll talk about it in the bio. But yeah, it's a really interesting story how we came up with that, but I'll tell you guys. I have, a, I have an autographed uh, copy of Moth the Hoople, autographed by uh, Will. Wow. Well, I just had to because I was right. that obsessed as, as a, you know, Pete Watts showed me his, and he says, oh, he says, I'm still in touch with him. I can get you one. So I ended up with a copy of it. But yes, because a hoople is apparently a hobo. So the guy's name was Mark. So it was basically Mark the Hobo, but it was Mark the Hoople. Thank God he wasn't called Mark the Hobo. It wouldn't have, wouldn't have been as good a name. No. You know? Guy Stevens came up with a lot of, of stuff. He came up with the name Procol Harum. Yep. As well. You know, he... He, and, and did you also know that um, uh, Brain Capers, the fourth and final album that Mob did for um, Island Record, was originally going to be called Sticky Fingers? Yeah. And it was, all the artwork was done. And then as they were finishing the album off, Mick Jagger came into the studio, um, watched them recording Walking With A Mountain, which is when they started singing Jumping Jack Flash or so. Oh, that could have been a previous record. But anyway, Jagger came in and they got talking and said, yeah, we're going to call the album Sticky Fingers. Well, you don't tell Mick Jagger that, do you? <laughs> <laughs> because then they ended up changing it. And brain, again, brain, brain Capers was a hybrid kind of, it was a, a, a spoonerism of, of two different phrases that, that were, I think, inspired by... Uh, Guy Stevens. Josh, you did, so, Guy. Uh, yeah. Guy Stevens had a lot to say about Mott Hoople. I mean, from, from setting the studio on fire to get them going, to throwing chairs through the window, and then when the, the message gets back to um, Chris Blackwell at Island Records, apparently we said, yeah, we burned the studio and threw a, win a chair through the window, but we got... The, uh, <laughs> apparently, this is what I'm told. Chris Blackwell said... Was it worth it? You know, and he said, "Yeah, we got the album finished." <laughs> 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 okay, fine. You know, <laughs> whatever you gotta do. Yeah, um, Josh, what do you, 
Yeah, you dig this. That guy Stevens, by the way, just so you guys know, I talk about it, but London, he produced London Calling when you heard all those stories about him like throwing chairs at the clash and he was like busting them down and like fighting them. Guy Stevens, so just so you guys know, produced, you know, was working with Free, which is how they got their contract. Mm -hmm. And then he went to jail for drugs. And in Wormwood Squubs, which is the name of the British jail, is where he came up with this moth. We read the book and he's like, I'm going to name a band that when I get out. Dude, basically, that's what he did. I love uh, it. Well, we, yeah. we come up with our best ideas in jail. We always do. When the band Silence, who were from Ross on Wye, uh, Hereford area of Wales, came to London, um, that's they were still called the Silence. And when the advert went in the paper for um, a singer, because the, uh, Stan Tippins, who became the band's right. tour manager, was the original. The, the, he was called the Italian Frank Sinatra in Italy. Um, he was obviously not a rock singer, but the, the advert was read, you know, um, frontman wanted for Dylan-esque, Stones-esque band. And that was the premise. That's what he wanted. He wanted a band with the power and the rock of the Rolling Stones, but they also wanted the subtlety of, of, of a Bob Dylan. And they couldn't have got a better frontman. I mean, they didn't yeah. know it at the time. Yeah. I mean, he was knocking around. Ian had been, he was 30. He'd been knocking around. I think he supported the Beatles at the, at the Star Club, uh, the, the club in Hamburg. You know, he, he was there with Freddie Fingers Jones. You know, he was, he, he was a kid, you know, the same age as the Beatles or even maybe a little older than them. Back in 62 doing this and he didn't get his break until 1969, you know. Mm -hmm. Is why you have a family that nobody boy did well. Yeah. yeah, boy did well for himself. Yeah, Morty, what do you got? So Mick Ralphs let Ian know that he was going to be quitting the band soon after this record. Uh, even uh, Hunter tried to get him to stay. He offered to split all his songwriting royalties in half with him. That was even the stuff he wrote. He was trying to keep Mick in the band. And one of the reasons uh, he appreciated Mick is because he worked better with somebody that argued with him in the studio. He liked mm -hmm. having that. He felt that combative spirit actually drove them to make better music hmm. uh, no doubt i mean you know talk to paul mccartney he's the expert in that one um you know you got to admit it's getting better getting better all the time couldn't get any worse i mean you know that's just a perfect example of, of their relationship um yeah he said it all along ian hunter loves mick ralph's no matter what they went through he loves him so much that he would jump off stage and beat the crap out of somebody in the crowd who threw a bottle at him. As if you read Diary of a Rock and Roll Star, you'll hear that story. Um, he didn't. He didn't even begrudge him the bad company gig, you know, because he knew he deserved it. Really, you know, he was disappointed, but at least what he did do with Ian was drive him on. Even if he drove him on to split the band and go on to a, a great solo career, wrote some amazing songs. You know, he was, you know, was always capable of carrying on no matter what, because within himself, he had the ability to write great songs. And that's way more important than being a wonderful musician. You've got to have songs. I'm, I'd much rather hear a, a great song played kind of shoddily than a perfectly played crap song. That's why I'm such a fan of like the New York Dolls, Absolutely. David Yeo or the early Alice Cooper band. They weren't great school musicians, but they made a great noise. And it and was I, so yeah. fun to listen to. I hear a lot of Alice Cooper in this, in, in, in Mop the Hoople, early Alice Cooper. I hear a lot of that swagger in it. That we've done one of their records. We did their record with Supermensch. And uh, 
it was, you know, you'll hear it if you listen to these back to back, just that no nonsense boogie strut thing. You know, it's awesome. Well, no, I wanted to ask him this because okay. uh, I want to, uh, we've got to talk because we, did uh hysteria on the podcast and you guys have had unbelievable success with producer mutt lang who is legendarily uh, reclusive and uh, notoriously domineering in the studio so when did it first click with him and did you always see the eye to eye on those albums directions oh i think i'd be lying if i said we always saw eye to eye <laughs> but we always solved our differences pretty quickly because he's mutt lang you know, um, yeah. why did we want Mutline to produce us? Because we'd heard his amazing records with ACDC, Foreigner. Um, a lot of bands that the American audiences wouldn't necessarily have heard of because he, he broke his, you know, he, he kind of cut his teeth on a lot of British bands or Irish bands um, that didn't have that much success in them. I mean, the Boomtown Rats had a certain amount of success in the States, but they were massive in the UK and Ireland. And he produced, I think, their first four albums. He also produced a band called The Motors, um, who had a fantastic song called Dancing the Night Away, once covered by Cheap Trick. He covered a band called The Records, who had a beautiful pop song called Tina Armour. Um, he produced Supercharge, a band called City Boy. He worked with XTC. He did a lot of stuff before Highway to Hell, which is the album that everybody in the world hears, sees his name for the first time. He'd done a lot of good stuff before Highway to Hell. Um, we were just fortunate that we were on the same management, Lieber Krebs, who had Aerosmith, Scorpions, New York Dolls, ACDC, Ted Nugent and us. Um, Mark Langer was producing ACDC and Peter Menchow, then manager, asked he would, uh, Mutt was coming up to see us, to see ACDC, but we happened to be opening for them. And he said, will you watch the opening act, please? And so Mutt stood at the mixing desk and watched us doing all the material from on through the night. And uh, Mensch turned around to him and said, what do you think? He says, rough diamond. He says, there's some good stuff there. Yeah. You know, he says it needs a lot of work, a lot of polish, but he says it's got a lot of potential. And he said, would you ever consider producing them? And he said, yes. So once we had that in our back pocket, we were like, because I wanted to get Mutt on the first album, but there wasn't, we didn't have any pull. So that was, no, it didn't happen. But once he'd seen us live and we had Mensch on our side, helping kind of do the deal, Mutt was involved, was in it, you know, and, and when we first realized we were going to work with him, we were due to start working with him in August of 80, maybe September. But the, the Foreigner 4 album took eight months longer than planned. Now, little did we know, <laughs> this would become a kind of a, a thing, you know. And we were just distraught. You know, I ended up working on a building site and my girlfriend, with my girlfriend's father's building company in the middle of winter, having had a top 20 album in England, a top 50 album almost in America. And that, you know, that first American tour, I was back on, on welfare and working on a building site waiting for him to finish his album. And when we first got together with Mutt in, uh, in a rehearsal room in London, we spent a month pre-produce, you know, doing pre-production on the, on the songs for High and Dry. And we thought we'd got them all written. So I got, there you go. And he's just going to go in and twiddle the knobs. And he took these songs to pieces. He took them to bits. 
deconstructing Harry is nothing on what Mo did. You know, this yeah. he totally took them to pieces. Said that one's good, but it, those lyrics are shit. We got to rewrite the lyrics. That song's okay. The lyrics are fine, but the tempo's terrible. Speed it up. Slow this one down. Chop that bit out. Put that bit in this song. Then they were like, whoa, slow down. You know, we'd never would. When we did the first album with Tom Allen, was a great guy and a really good producer. I think he's. His memo from the, the 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 label was just capture their energy. They've been playing these songs live for eighteen months. They're not going to change them, and we didn't. We just and that's what the first album is. But when it came to the second record, we weren't that familiar with the songs in the first place, so it wasn't so painful to take them to bits. It was just something that we'd never done. And by the time we got the album finished, we kind of got it. So when we went in to do Pyromania, we were already kind of tuned into that mentality. But of course, by then, it's 1982 now, and technology is changing. We're almost into the CD realm, and we're into digital equipment in the studio and drum machines and, and all these sequences and synthesizers where we could do things like what the Beatles did, but 10 times as fast. Instead of turning the tape upside down and twisting it around for a backwards echo, you just did a button that said backwards echo. It's like, yeah. So we did a lot of stuff that we didn't get to use, but we experimented and went, oh, this is going to be great. And then a week later went, now nah, it sounds too much like the Human League or you know, whoever yeah. was around. We use all the technology, but still be a rock band. Um, and I think what we had, our relationship with Mo, he had a longer relationship with us than any other band he's worked with just because he knew we were good clay. He could mold us, yeah. but at the same time, it was good clay. It was moldable. We would listen to his ideas, and at the same time, he would listen to ours. So if we were really adamant that something was wrong, he'd go, okay, what's your way of, you want to do it? And we would try it our way. Okay, I'm fine with that. So it wasn't all dictatorial at all. It was a working relationship where we used his knowledge of the studio that we didn't have because why would you employ him if you weren't going to allow him to do his job you know yeah. so let me let me ask you this because we when we broke down hysteria we we really went deep into pour some sugar on me um did you have any idea when you were working on that song that you would change the game in strip club music <laughs> from that dude i used to be a strip club dj i wish i would have been a strip club dj in the era of that song at its height because i can only imagine what it would have been like but dude still one of the songs if i ever called a, a two-for-one special i play pour some sugar on me and the girls knew it's time to go find the lad and it, it's just so so please just just tell me about like just talk about that song because i fucking love it more than anything oh we no we didn't know when it was going to do that because you know, I mean, the great thing about a success when you go backwards over the history of it is there's always these little markers where you go, I can't believe it got past that one to get to where it is. It was the last song on the album. We weren't even planning on doing a 12th song. We'd done. We started the album with Steinman. It didn't work. We trashed that. We, we did it with Mutt's engineer, who was a fantastic engineer, who carried on all the way through the album, but without more. And he'd just be on the phone going, no, that's not working. And we were like, what are we going to do? Then he came back and very cleverly, instead of making us start the album again, he'd go, let's just add another guitar to this song. And he'd keep adding guitars and then he'd get rid of the original ones. <laughs> and he'd say to me, just go in and 
clean up this vocal and I ended up re-singing the whole thing. He was very quite clever the way he did it. Um, but we had 11 songs and there was only me and Mo in the studio and the other guys had gone away for the weekend and we were working on Armageddon. I'll never forget this. And he went for a coffee or whatever and I was just bored standing in the studio. So I went into the control room and picked up an acoustic guitar and started playing the chorus to what would become Sugar. Um, for no other reason than I could, you know, it's dead simple. Um, and he came back into the room and he, I was obviously I was singing the, the, the chorus hook as well. And he said, what is that? And I genuinely think he thought I was going to say, it's a track from, you know, you know, Rolling Stones album or the Kinks or something. Yeah. And I said, it's just this idea that I've had, but you know, no, no big deal. And he goes, no, 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 play it again. So I played it again. And he said, that's the biggest hook I've heard for five years. We're doing this. Yes. And I said, you do realize you've got four other guys in the band that are going to tear their hair out at the thought of doing another song because we'd spent two years doing this album anyway. So he said, yeah, but let's, if we do a quick demo and get it to a point where they can't say no. So he said, I said, okay, fine. So he literally took the tape for Armageddon it off, boxed it away, put a clean piece of tape on and he said, play it. So I started playing it and he started tapping out on a drum machine, a kind of, we will rock you drum beat. And then he put a, a synthesized bass on it. Then he put some electric chords on it and we sang the chorus. And then we started doing melodies and it's, it's, it originally sounded like Come Together by the Beatles. It's two half tempo and we needed to double it up, you know, and Aerosmith and Run DMC came to mind and all this stuff that was happening at the time mixed in with just classic rock anyway. We got the song to a point that when everybody came back in on the Monday morning and we went like, uh, guys, mm. uh, we've got like another song, kind of. And they were like, oh God. And we played it and what we had, which wasn't the whole song by any means. And you know, within a couple of minutes, within a minute or two, they're all like going, oh yeah, some of that. <laughs> and ironically, having spent two years making this record, we banged the whole thing out pretty much in about 10 days. Yeah. You know, um, the lyrics were hilarious. Me and Mo had these little uh, micro cassette recorders that you used to use to, you know, memo things so you wouldn't mm. forget them. And we went into opposite corners of the room next to the big speakers in the control room and just scattered like Cab Calloway. Noises were over the melody that we'd come up with. And then we swapped machines and tried to decipher what we thought the other person wow. had been singing. And that's how I came up with Love is Like a Bomb Baby, Come and Get It On, because that's what I thought he sang, but he didn't, you know. <laughs> but as soon as we had that... We went, it's Mark Boland. It's T-Rex 1971. It's bang a gong, as you guys would call it. Get it on. It's all this hubcap diamond star halo kind of lyric. And as soon as we had that, we had a direction. And boom, we're off. But the, it's the first time, I think, if I remember correctly, where we know that we've had the hook before we've had the verses. Normally, you write the song from start as you go along. And then you get to the chorus like, Ah, where's the chorus? And then you have to sit around and labor and work on it. This we had the summit. Now all we had to do is build the path to it, you know. Yeah. So Phil came up with a guitar lick, the bow down, you know, and we did it in a really weird key because I was adamant that I wasn't going to sing like of Pyromania, everything god high, because I lost my voice on that tour because 
this, you know, six shows a week doing that, it, no, impossible. I said, I want everything down lower, which is why it's in a much more singing key, more Jagger-esque, if you like, than a Bob Alford or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and he worked perfectly for us because he makes it more commercial doing that anyway. You know, so it was, it was one of those songs that it was a last minute thing. When it was released as a single in England, it went to number 18, uh, yeah, whatever. And when it came out on rock in America, it didn't do anything at all. But then it got picked up by pop radio and he got picked up in strip clubs in Florida. Yeah, and he literally was like a wildfire from east to west coast in probably eight weeks. We went away, having toured from September 87 to February 88. We went to, do, we went to Europe to do a six, eight-week tour. And by the time we came back in the summer of 88, the album had sold four million copies more than when we left. And we were the biggest band on the planet. And the, every show, we were doing three nights at the Meadowlands, three nights everywhere. It was insane. And it was all on the strength of Sugar doing so well. And then, of course, that set Love Bites Up Beautifully to be our first ever number one hit on the Billboard Top 200. Ooh. And then, you know, it was crazy. But Sugar was the most beautiful accident you could ever imagine completely unplanned as all the best things are always it's never when you plan it also by the way i gotta say you could play love bites at a strip club too when the girl wants to get emotional she really wants to slow it down a little bit i'll play love bites but sugar always it can work. It's, it's not as sexy it's not as much fun to watch a girl dance to that as it is sugar sugar's got it all rocket too dude I t- i'm telling you i'm looking at the i'm Looking at the track list of Hysteria right now, I'm like, Woman, Rocket, Animal Love Bites, Pour Some Sugar On Me. Yeah, you could do any what Hysteria. Come on, dude. I, I remember, I remember seeing somebody, Phil or Sav maybe, that, you know, I said, one day we will have our brown sugar. You know, because we wanted to, we didn't want our Beyond the Realms of Death or our Stargazer. We, we had all the kind of rock album tracks. We wanted a... A, a pop rock rock song, if you like, yeah. that was timeless the way Brown Sugar is timeless. And I think maybe five years afterwards, when it was voted still number one best video on MTV, even in 1992 or whatever it was, I remember turning around and saying, I think we've got it. <laughs> I think we finally got it. You know, because you play that song live. Whenever we do that song live, the audience reaction is, it's, insane it's you know it's what you dream of as a kid when you form a band that's the end game right there 100 percent. i can only imagine all right let's get you we got some rapid questions and we're going to get out of here okay all right favorite song on the record which album we're talking about is dear or we're talking about mod now <laughs> uh, my favorite, well, honestly this like children difficult to pick and i suppose depending on how well they behave you can swap your answer every day as of right now, my favorite song on the album would be I Wish I Was Your Mother. Okay. Least favorite song on the record, which I know is a weird thing to say, but so it could just be the one that you might skip over because if you love it so much. Never skipped over a song. I can't answer that one. I've, I've never skipped over a track on that record. Good answer. All right. What song on this record would you fuck to? All of them. There you go. <laughs> yeah, start right I, at the top. I, all of them. I just put it on, and if I could last to the last one, <laughs> wow. 
<laughs> All right. Don't say and mothers. Then last, and then last, last question. Does this deserve to be on the 500 greatest albums list? And is it ranked accordingly? I can understand it maybe not quite being in the top 10 because it's the politics. It's like, how can you put an album from a band that weren't that big? It's got to be the Beatles or Jimi Hendrix or the Rolling Stones. Or da, 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 you know, the usual suspects, as I call them. Um, it deserves to be way higher than, than, 30, than 370. But considering how many albums there are, and I'm sure, um, you know, you can tell me that there's possibly, since, the, since Rock Around the Clock, there's been maybe 10 trillion albums released or whatever. To get into the top 500 is pretty cool. It is. So, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm happy, I suppose, that they're in there at all, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd be more than happy if they were above us, to be quite honest. Because I'm all about, you know, uh, re- you know, respect to your elders and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's a phenomenal record. It's a record that anybody that's got a pair of ears that thinks they know something about music has to own. You have to own this the way you have to own, supposedly, Exile on Main Street, but give me Tattoo You any day. Yeah. Um, or you have to own the White Album and give me Revolver any day, you know. Um, or Tommy or Quadrophenia, you have to own a certain amount of records. This record has to be in that that category. I love it. I love it. Uh, Joe, do you have anything you want to promote, buddy? Go ahead. No, I don't at the moment because, well, for obvious reasons, but um, come back to me in a year's time and you might have a different answer. <laughs> I, I, wait, is the is the, the Def Leppard Motley Crue tour, ever, is it going to happen in 2022? Maybe. It's, um, well, I would hope so, yeah. um, unless it's already happened in 2021. <laughs> it's still, it's still, you know, when we can't say anything because we don't know anything. Yeah. It's there's there's a bunch of grown-ups between us and that decision, and we're just hanging on a thread like everybody else. Yeah. I'm, well, I can't wait for it. I cannot wait. I was so excited about that show. Um, Morty, you got anything uh, to promote? Isn't there Def Leppard 3, the box set? Isn't that? Okay, yeah, all right. I was, didn't want to didn't want to hear me, 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 me. I didn't want no, to hear yeah, It's great. This is, it's got, yeah, if you guys don't know it, listen to uh, yeah, It's like your okay. in, uh, in early June, I believe, we are releasing box set three, um, which we cleverly did with a quarter of the logo on each box. So when you do buy them all, it creates the whole Def Leppard triangular logo from the early days on the spine of this thing. So it really stands out on a shelf. Um, it's box set three, which covers the years, uh, the X album, um, uh, and yeah, it's also now got year two, year three live, and Sparkle Lounge and B-Sides. So it's a nine album vinyl six CD box set with a, a very, very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, the, the substantial book inside. You're almost buying the book and getting the CDs or the vinyl for free. It's massively, you know, everybody in the band was interviewed. Great old footage of photos of the band that nobody's ever seen. Um, and, and, it tells the story of the band during that period. So, you know, it's a, it's a great companion to the first two. And of course there will be a fourth one because um, I can't tell you they won't. The logo <laughs> looks completely ridiculous. <laughs> Look at it, all. The, the, oh, the farm I'm missing. So, you know, but that'll cover everything from 2008 onwards. Um, but yeah, that's coming out and it's all, you know, it's been remastered uh, by Ronan, who's the band's sound guru for the last 25 years. 
the new motor, as I call him. And it sounds fantastic. It's a great package. You know, I mean, most people may already have this material, but there's a lot of stuff that you don't. And there are previously unreleased songs, some really strange, bizarre and eccentric covers that were done that never saw the light of day. That's great. Not alone, it's worth getting. That's great. Everybody go out and get it. Morty, you got anything? Absolutely, yeah. So uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter, DJ Morty Coyle. You can find me on Clubhouse if you're that way. Uh, mm-hmm. Check out B and Daddy Cartoons on, on uh, Instagram. And I want to give a shout out to Mark Hodgkinson. He's Mr. Underscore H underscore teacher. He teaches seventh grade in Canada. And I think he plays saxophone. But he's all, I'm, anybody that teaches kids and loves, loves rock and roll like that, we'd love to give a shout out to. And he retweets all our stuff. So shout out to Mr. H. Keep teaching the kids about rock and roll. Mark came to see us in Toronto at JFL 42 and his foot was hurt and he traveled many miles. So I love you, Mark. Uh, JT, what do you got? He didn't walk there, did he? No. Uh, (laughs) Yes, he walked. That's why he hurt his foot. (laughs) (laughs) At NC Podcast, next chapter podcast, we have Macbeth. I think episode five coming out on Friday. So. That's what people want to do. Get in a car and sit in traffic and listen to Shakespeare. (laughs) Uh, Joe, this was so phenomenal, buddy. I I can't thank you. My pleasure, guys. Anytime. Um, See you down the road somewhere uh, out when the zombie apocalypse has passed. Yeah, dude. Yeah, dude. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? The one and only Joe Elliott. Ah, man. That is really cool. Man, I just want to thank Joe Elliott so much for doing it. Def Leppard will be releasing a limited edition box set titled Def Leppard Volume 3 on June 11th. Check DefLeppard.com for more info and go see them on tour when they're back. Now, we just listened to Mata Hoople from 1973. Our new music pick this week is A Giant Dog. An American punk five-piece that Bandcamp Daily described as one of Austin's most thrillingly irreverent bands. You're listening to the song Bend Over off their 2017 record Toy on Merge Records. And you can find all the links on our website, the500podcast.com. And if you're in a band and you want your music played on the 500 because you were influenced by one of these albums we're doing, send us your fucking song to 500podcast.gmail.com. We will play it. Make sure you put the album and artist that influenced you in the subject line. Oh, next week. I like doing that. Next week. That's why I've been doing it for 125 episodes. It is Smith's Week from the 1987 album Louder Than Bombs. And uh, it's our second Smith's record. And let me tell you, I don't think I'm starting to like him. And if you haven't heard it, listen to it. Do your homework. Stay pleasing.
Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal, the man, to Fat Mike from No Effects, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Next Chapter Podcasts.